Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome a special friend back to the podcast. My guest is Benjamin Cohen. He's the news editor at The Forward, which is the most widely read Jewish newspaper anywhere. His newest book is The Einstein Effect, How the World's Favorite Genius Got Into Our Cars, Our Bathrooms, and Our Minds. The Einstein Effect is a fascinating look into how Einstein's genius and science continues to show up in so many facets of our everyday lives and his enduring legacy as an unlikely pop culture icon. I give you Benjamin Cohen. Benjamin, welcome to the podcast. Scott, thanks for having me on. I think, what is this? I'm a second time guest? Third time I, guest? I think second or third. Yeah. You're, what, you're, you're, and full disclosure, you're, you've become a dear friend. And that was a very fun time when we connected and we've become quite close over the years. And I just read your book, The Einstein Effect, How the World's Favorite Genius Got Into Our Cars, Our Bathrooms, and Our Minds. And I loved it. I, I was So let me tell you the first thought I had as I was getting into the book. I heard a, an Aristotle scholar say once that it's like, it's like aliens, you know, like the human race was struggling and they just thought, you know, what they need is like a little help. And they just dropped Aristotle on the planet and he like Greece and he just helped push the human race forward. I, I thought about that quote when I read your book, I just thought, wow, Einstein made such a massive contribution, not just in science, but in uh, technology and popular culture in world peace. It's almost like he just moved the football so far down the field in such a, a short period of time. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. I, w- I would say so. I mean, look, I wrote a book about him, so of course I'm a little biased uh, <laughs> about that. Uh, but yeah, he was uh, one of a kind once in a generation, once in probably f- four generations, you know. I think uh, before him there was, you know, uh, Galileo and Newton, and then he came around and really just forever changed the way we look at the universe, uh, even until this day, scientists are still using his uh, understanding of the universe to uh, come up with new ideas. The the guy, the, the team that won the Nobel Prize in physics this week, uh, they were studying some of Einstein's work. That's what they received the Nobel Prize in. Now, your love affair connection to Albert Einstein starts in such a funny and interesting way. You became the online avatar. You talk about this in the intro to the book, and, and I knew this about you. That you, they were hiring somebody to manage the, the Einstein, the people that steward his legacy. Hired, they hired you. They look were looking for somebody to do his tweets and his social media, and they hired you, someone who can generously be said, right? You're not a, you're not writing physics equations on 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 your chalkboard at home, right? I mean, this is you're not a career scientist, and yet you wooed them. How did they hire you? How did they you become the online avatar of Albert Einstein? It's a, it's a great question. It's a, it's a really uh, kind of really bizarre side hustle. Like you said, I'm not a scientist. I'm just a journalist. At best, you know, I call myself a likable idiot. Uh, you know, so I, I don't know the difference, you know, between the uh, 
theory of rel- the special theory of relativity and the general theory of relativity. Uh, I really don't know uh, any of that stuff. And so it is kind of funny that they hired me. But I also think it's, it's why they hired me. Uh, so let's just take a step back. So the Albert Einstein Archives um, owns, the, um, owns the Einstein estate. And anytime, um, anytime you have Einstein on a T-shirt or a coffee mug or a mouse pad, um, it's licensed through them, and they make a few uh, they make a few pennies off of that. So one of the th- and it's basically run by academics, by physicists. So any other physicists who are doing research, they have eighty thousand documents there uh, that from Einstein and letters that people wrote to Einstein and Einstein wrote to people, and all of his equations. They have all of this there, and so it's really just a great repository of Einstein research. But one of the things they have is also the official Albert Einstein social media accounts. Uh, and Einstein has more than 20 million fans across Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and threads. Einstein has more Facebook fans than Tom Hanks, than the Rolling Stones. I mean, look, John Wayne is on Twitter, but, you know, he doesn't really have much to say. Marilyn Monroe offers fashion advice on Twitter. But Einstein, I, I you know, as the as the person who runs the Einstein account, I post about... 10 times uh, a day on the account, you know, so a lot of it, to answer your question, a lot of it is like um, science stories, you know, like science that's related to Einstein, but a lot of it is fun stuff. And I think that's kind of where I can contribute because I'm not a scientist. So I post, you know, famous quotes of Einstein. I post every Thursday, a throwback Thursday picture, you know, an old picture of Einstein. Uh, I try to do, you know, fun stuff related to the news, inserting Einstein. Um, and and th- that's kind of why I got the job is I was a journalist writing a lot of stories, just fun stories, quirky stories about Einstein. Like uh, I interviewed somebody for a story I wrote who uh, is the world's leading collector of celebrity hair. And he has a piece of Einstein's hair. And so I interviewed him for an article. And so the Einstein estate saw that I was kind of obsessed with the non-scientific side of Einstein. And they they asked me to become Einstein on social media, and I've been doing it uh, for about six years now. Now, you relay a story in the book, and I, I actually, I think I knew this story from our friendship. Ivanka Trump once tweeted out that uh, if if a fact, uh, if, if a theory, if, if your fact doesn't, uh, or a theory doesn't fit the facts, get new facts. Yeah. No, I think actually the, the the way you should think of it is like if the facts don't fit the theory, get a new th- you know uh, get, get a, a new, new theory, theory. <laughs> right? But she yeah. says if the fact, you know, get, uh, get new facts. You she quotes she credits Einstein with the quote, and you say Ivanka, and I didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, did she reply back to you? No, she never replied back. But um, when. When we replied as Albert Einstein, she, like you said, she misquoted Einstein. And, you know, in her defense, I don't know if she needs our defense, but in her defense, the Internet is littered with fake Einstein quotes. I don't think she was being malicious or deliberate. She probably assumed it was a real Einstein quote. And we, uh, you know, the Einstein estate gave me like an 800 page book of official Einstein quotes. And so I looked up and that that quote was not in the book. So so we put on there. I, I replied to Ivanka, you know, yeah, I never said that, Ivanka. And I actually put a link to the uh, book of quotations of Einstein. And it made international headlines. You know, uh, people, newspapers in, in, uh, in England and all over the world were writing stories about how Albert, Albert Einstein uh, dunked on Ivanka Trump uh, on Twitter. 
So and we actually gained a lot of followers uh, that day. But you are like Bruce Wayne. I mean, you know, like you're putting on the bat cow, like the Einstein cow, right? They don't even know that they think it's you. It's like Einstein's version of Batman. But then you slip back into the into the back cave, into Cohen Manor, and yeah. uh, go about your but your business. You know, no, this is as I'm reading your book. I mean, it, it's it's I love it. It's a story. I mean, you 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 put your own. You, there's a lot of you in that, which is which is lovely and. uh I'm curious when when someone like Ivanka or someone um, gets Einstein wrong or you see Einstein misconstrued, um, do you take it personally as, as Einstein's avatar? I mean, have, how how have you? I mean, have you developed a, a relationship with this dead figure? I mean, first of all, I think there's a there's there's this myth around Einstein that's been created, and so I think everybody has their own relationship with Albert Einstein, uh, whether or not that's based in facts. You know, certainly. You know, I interviewed a lot of physicists for the book, and, you know, they certainly all have a connection with Einstein, you know, based on, you know, connected to his theories and, and things like that. But, like, I think the average person knows just enough about Einstein to get things wrong, right? Uh, like, we all think he's this genius. We all think he said all these uh, smart, prophetic things. And so sometimes it's easy to, even if Einstein didn't say something, it's easy for us to say, well, yeah, Einstein did say that, or Einstein would have said something like that. So I, I think it's very easy, to, uh, because we mythologize him, to paint him in whatever picture uh, suits our needs at the time. I think of George Bernard, Bernard Shaw, I think it was, that said, God made man in his own image and man returned the favor. It probably sounds like that's the case with Einstein too. I mean, we, we, yeah. we all have an Einstein of our own image or own liking or own making. Yeah. I mean, I mean, part of it was Einstein's fault too. He was always open to talking to any reporter. And even if he was not an expert on a subject, he would just start talking about it. So like he'd be on their stories, he'd be traveling on a train and some, you know, local reporter from, you know, Podunk, Indiana would interview him about, a sports team in Indiana and he would like say, you know, he would, he would say something about it. Uh, and so I think all of these quotes kind of, you know, came about that like, well, Einstein said something about this baseball team in Podunk, Indiana. Maybe he also said something about, you know, uh, something else. So I think part of it was, was his fault. So you, you, you go on this, this, this journey uh, all around, uh, you know, the country and uh, meet all these interesting people of course, you had to go to one of my alma maters, Princeton, uh, you know, a wonderful town. I lived there for several years. And there you actually held Einstein's brain. This is unbelievable, this chapter in your book where you describe this guy who actually has custody of Einstein's brain. What was that like to hold the world's greatest, most recognizable genius, to hold his brain in your hands? Yeah, well, I don't have custody is the right word because he actually it's it's a stolen it's a stolen relic. Let me let me tell you the story or for the listeners who haven't read the book yet, uh, and maybe this will entice them to to get the book, The Einstein Effect, now on sale wherever you get uh, good books. Um, so when Einstein died in April eighteenth, nineteen fifty five, uh, he was on the autopsy table, and the pathologist performing the autopsy. Um, and when he was done performing the autopsy, he cut open Einstein's head and stole Einstein's brain. Um, you know, I like to call it the greatest heist of the 20th century. It was, this was against the Einstein family wishes. Einstein wanted to be cremated, which the rest of his body was cremated. But um, this pathologist stole the brain. And now he wasn't doing it because he was this m macabre, you know, Frankenstein scientist who wanted to 
hold Einstein's brain. He wanted to see what made Einstein's brain unique. Like you said, this is the most famous brain of the 20th century. Um, what Was there something you could look at Einstein's brain and see that it was unique or special in some way? And so he stole the brain and he kept it in uh, various places over the decades. He, mason jars. He, at one point, he kept it in a beer cooler in his basement. And now he's not a brain researcher. He couldn't tell, you know, a Mozart from a Manson brain. And so he would cut up little pieces of the brain and send them. He would sometimes unsolicited. He would just send them. He would like find out that there's a brain researcher at Stanford and just unsolicited. He would cut up a piece of the brain, put it in a FedEx envelope and send it to this brain researcher at Stanford or Canada or Mexico. There are pieces of Einstein's brain all over the world because this guy kept cutting it up and sending it to brain researchers. Now, you're going to question is, well, what did these brain researchers discover? I mean, it's up for debate because it's the chicken and the egg conundrum. Was, did Einstein, was he born with this special brain? Or did Einstein, the genius, turn his brain into this, into this genius specimen? And it's also like, you know, it's a very philosophical debate. The, is the brain the physical brain or is it the, the consciousness that resides in, inside the human being? So it's like, you know, how much can you tell from a brain? So the scientists who studied Einstein's brain, there was um, a debate. Some of them found nothing. It looked like the average brain. And some of them, uh, perhaps for headline purposes or to advance their own career, said, yes, Einstein's brain was unique in this way. Einstein's brain was unique in that way. So it's really unknown, you know, what, if his brain was special. So this guy still has most of Einstein's brain. You know, he cut up little pieces. He cut it up into more than 200 pieces. And he still has the bulk of it. They're in mason jars. And he's himself is getting old. This is, you know, in the early 2000s. So he decides to give it to another doctor, a younger doctor in Princeton who he's friendly with. And so before he dies in 2007, he gives it to this younger doctor in Princeton, all the jars. There's about four or five jars filled with Einstein's brain. And so this guy who has Einstein's brain now, the younger doctor, he doesn't want to be known because he's afraid people will come to his house and steal the brain or that I will come to his house and steal the brain. <laughs> uh, and so, but he agreed to meet with me. And so I met him in a parking lot in Princeton and uh, he popped open his trunk and inside the trunk were, was a cardboard box and in that cardboard box was four or five jars filled with Einstein's brain. And so I got to hold the brain. I held the jars, you know, it, it, like you said, it, I, I spent two years writing this book and, you know, building my own relationship, my own personal relationship with Albert Einstein. And to be able to hold the last physical vestige of the man I had been studying, it was, it was a very awe-inspiring uh, moment. You, you also mentioned in the book, uh, I love this, these, this, the book is so interesting because, again, it's like joining you on this journey. So you have a chapter on GPS. And you say, you say that um, if you Google the inventor of GPS, um, you come up with two uh, names, Albert Einstein and this one, Gladys May West. And the irony is, is that, uh, and you talk about how GPS works in the chapter. It's great. But you say she doesn't use GPS. <laughs> she likes yeah. maps. This is so funny. Yeah. So Einstein's theory of relativity is the foundation for GPS in our cars so that, 
you know, when, when you are driving and stuck in traffic and the GPS gives you directions, you have Albert Einstein uh, to thank for that. So he came up with the equations, but it was this woman who worked for the, the U.S. military in the 1960s, 1950s, 1960s, who actually took his mathematical models and applied it to the GPS that we know of today. And it's this woman, she was part of the Hidden Figures uh, historical movement of these um, young black women who worked for NASA, who worked for the Navy, who worked for the military, who were kind of like human computers, human calculators, figuring out these equations. Anyway, so she is credited with helping invent GPS based on Einstein's calculations. And first of all, nobody knows who she is, which I find a very funny historical footnote that, you know, she doesn't really get credit for something she helped develop. But yeah, so she's in her 90s now, and I interviewed her when I was writing the book, and she, she told me, I said, so do you use GPS? And she's like, no, I like, you know, I prefer the old-fashioned tactile maps, you know, that I can just hold in my hands, which uh, I, I thought that was pretty ironic. Yeah, I mean, is it really ironic? I'm trying to think of the Alanis Morissette song. Yes, I think it is. Pro- it actually is ironic. Because, yeah, it's not raining on your wedding day. <laughs> yeah, that's called a coincidence. You know, it's not, it's not ironic in the least. Yeah, one of, one of the strangest, one of the most strange songs. Um, although I am a, I am a fan of Alanis Morissette, so I'll, uh, I'll let it be. Uh, you know, so another thing that I'm, I'm uh, fascinated by is, is your, um. Your capacity for um, Einstein's capacity for fallibility, right? I mean, you you t- you were talking with a guy um, who was another Einstein scientist, a guy I think it was Albert Lo- uh, Albert um, Avi Loeb. Yeah, Avi Loeb. Mm-hmm. And you talk. There's this great quote you said uh, where, where you guys in the book you're discussing all of his brilliance and your interactions with him, and then um, he has this great quote: "When you work at the frontier, you don't always know what's right, what's wrong." Um, but nowadays, you find this culture of scientists where they don't put skin in the game. They don't make predictions that can be proven wrong. That's the most comfortable position. And when you can say that you're, and then you can say that you're always right. You'll get the honors and awards. But what's the point? So he, Albie Lip, paints this picture of Einstein as someone who was willing to take risks, a big thinker. He's not some special. Now again, I know your wife's an academic, and academic lifestyle is, is I'm going to prove this one point about this piece of minutia. And I'll be the best expert on that. But, but Einstein's thinking about everything and thinking about the world in this grand and cosmic scale. And I, I, I found that it's, I, I, he, is it fair to say he's, it, there's this spirit of intellectual courage and curiosity to him? Yeah, I think that's what allowed Einstein to become Einstein. That's actually the secret sauce of Einstein, is that he did not care what people thought about him. You know, on the most basic level, not even in the scientific world, we can put that aside for a second. Einstein, you know, just in his looks, didn't care what people thought about him. He had wild and crazy hair. He hated uh, getting dressed up whenever he had to go to a, a fancy event. He much preferred, he used to walk around Princeton in his pajamas and slippers. You know, uh, there's a you, famous you, story. You, you experimented with this. You tell the story. Yeah. Like, you, you, you did a little of this yourself around the lovely town I, of Morgantown. Yeah, I, I walk around in pajamas all the time now because I call it an Einstein life hack. I don't even have to think about what to wear. The problem is everybody, I live in a college town, so all the students, everyone's kind of walking around in their, in their PJs around here. But, but going back to what you were saying, so like Einstein didn't care what people thought about him, okay? And this, specifically in the world of science, he knew that humans were fallible. He even knew that he himself was fallible. He used to come up with things and he's like, this can't be, you know, because this doesn't jive with what's, you know... Um, what science has been saying for centuries. But he knew the science was correct, even though humans didn't accept that science. And so 
when Einstein first came up with his groundbreaking theories in the early part of the 1900s, many scientists thought he was nuts. They thought he was a crackpot. There is uh, a bunch of, you know, a bunch of books were written. You know, I think there's one called 92 Scientists Against Einstein. And it was this manifesto of these scientists saying Einstein's a crazy man and his theory of relativity is crazy and none of this makes any sense and don't believe anything he says. I mean, nowadays we, we laugh at that, that people would think Einstein was crazy. But at his, in his time, in his generation, people thought he was crazy. He, when, when, he, when he graduated college, he couldn't even find a job being a professor. Nobody wanted to hire him. Uh, he had to work as a patent clerk for many years. And it wasn't until he won the Nobel Prize that people were like, oh, okay, maybe we should, maybe we should start to give him some respect. It's interesting because he, you, you remark in the book that early on when he was publishing theories, um, there were a lot of scientists that tried to discredit him and even used anti-Semitic um, attacks on him. And he had to flee Germany. And now the EB1 visa is now called uh, the Einstein visa. And also, uh, we have to thank for the Einstein visa, the likes of Melania Trump. I mean, did you ever... Did you ever like a, a tweet out as Einstein? All right, we need higher standards for my visa. No, <laughs> the the Einstein estate doesn't like when I get too political on social media, so I I try to keep it light and fun. But you're, you're absolutely correct. So, um, you know, as I said a minute ago, when Einstein first came up with his theories, the first response from fellow scientists was "You're a nut job." And then later, once he won the Nobel Prize and people started taking him seriously, that's when the rise of Nazi Germany happened. And his fellow German scientists came up with two forms of, of, um, of um, two ways to attack him. Number one, they said, um, you didn't come up with this theory. We came up with this theory. So they, they were taking credit for his theory. And number two, they were saying, uh, you're, you're Jewish and we don't believe this theory. Like it was two contradictory theories, but they were attacking him because he was Jewish because he was, uh, and because he was so outspoken. And so he, you're right. He had to flee Germany. He came to the United States, and right. So nowadays we have this. Einstein, it's called an Einstein visa for people of high achievement. It's supposed to be people of high achievement in, in sciences, professors, and things like that. But nowadays, supermodels, other people are using it uh, as well. I think not only did Melania Trump use it. I think Melania Trump's parents came to the U.S. Uh, on an Einstein visa. But what was you know taking this story to the next to the next stage. When he came to America, he wanted to help save his, his rescue, his fellow German Jews from, from Nazi Germany. And so he spent his own money trying to help Jews relocate and some of them, you know, getting visas for them. Some of them, he got to Mexico and Alaska. He got them to all sorts of random places around the globe. And he created this group called the International Rescue Committee, uh, which is the world's largest refugee resettlement organization. It's still around today. It's helping... Sudanese refugees, Ukrainian refugees, and Einstein started this group in the 1930s to help save his his um, his fellow German Jews. And it just goes to show you, like the point of my whole book is to show the modern day impact of Einstein that it's still around today, helping refugees. Something that Einstein created nearly 100 years ago. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because um, somebody that works with with refugees that you talk about in this book that you actually interviewed the book is uh, Mandy Patinka. And you guys, I love you, you telling the story of you actually meeting this guy who you're a huge fan of. And um, he, he has given his life uh, to, to continue this legacy of Einstein. I mean, in, in his own, out, out when, he's, out when he's off screen, he's, he's doing 
amazing humanitarian work. What what was that like bonding with Mandy Patinkin to talk about Einstein? I mean, it's just like it's surreal to me when I'm reading. You meet this guy on Zoom, and and you're going to actually spend time with him, right, to talk about the book uh, in the coming months. Yeah, I'm actually doing an event uh, mid-October in New York City, October 18th, with Mandy Patinkin. Now, if you were to ask me when I was growing up, you know, you know, obsessed with the Princess Bride and watching Mandy Patinkin on screen in the 1980s and saying, "Hey, one day you're going to be friends with this guy." <laughs> um, and, and the I, the, uh, the the cool thing is, is that Albert Einstein brought us together. And again, it's the point of my book is to show that even in the world of non-scientists, Albert Einstein, his fingerprints can be found all over the you know in, in our daily lives, and we can talk about some of the technology he invented. But one of the ways is 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 uh, his his empathy towards his fellow human beings. And he was very involved in the refugee movement. But even when he moved to America, he was also very involved in the civil rights movement. He couldn't believe that, you know, he just escaped Germany where Jews were discriminated against and he came to America and and blacks were considered, you know, the other and they were being mistreated and maligned. And so he really spoke out uh, vehemently and vociferously against uh uh, against racism, and he he um, he spoke at black colleges. He even paid the tuition for a black student at Princeton. Um, so it just goes to show the the multitudes of Einstein's uh, personality. I love what Patinkin says, and this is this is so touching. He says um, he was intelligent in his soul. In my life, what he's known for is not the theory of relativity, but the theory of relatives. So beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he was just an empathic man, and he was a man of humility too. You know, we talk, we look at like other leaders today. I mean, other political figures today, world leaders today. You look at someone like Donald Trump or Elon Musk or these people who are giants in their field, uh, who are looked at as giants in their field, and they don't seem as empathic and humble as Albert Einstein. And he really was this uh, rare character, I think, in our history. And I think. There's a lot we can we can learn from him, and I, I hope people do. Did, did did you learn that lesson to some degree? Because I mean, one of the things that I found touching as your friend, as I read the book, was you constantly admit, I, I'm out of my depths on on some of this stuff. Yeah, I'm trying to like teach myself basic science again. And there's a beautiful humility to your approach to this towering figure. Was that a conscious choice in the book, where you're like, look, I'm just going to let my I'm going to let my uh, I'm going to lead with a little bit of a limp here. I'm gonna I'm going to show. Um, that I'm not uh, an expert on this guy, but I'm going to delve in anyway. Uh, it's funny. I, well, it's actually, I was not, I mean, it's interesting you bring that up. I did not consciously think that. I will tell you this though. I try to write with, I try to write with humor and the humor I write sometimes is tinged with humility. Somebody, I once got the best advice from a fellow writer, AJ Jacobs. And he said, the, the best way to write is to be self-deprecating. And I would keep a sticky note on my computer monitor that says be self-deprecating because you know you don't want to laugh at other people, but if you want to laugh at yourself and, and invite other people to laugh at yourself with you, I think that's that's a way to bring people into the tent and to let people, you know, people's guards are let down and you can relate to people more when you start to make fun of yourself and not put yourself on a pedestal. And Einstein, now that you mention it, yeah, Einstein was a perfect example of that. He made fun of himself <laughs> all the time. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. As someone who's preached hundreds and hundreds of sermons, I, I, this is one of the things that I completely agree on. I, I don't, I haven't often used personal illustrations, but whenever I do, I make sure I look like the fool. Right. I, because it lets people trust you. Like, oh, he's got foibles. He's, or she's got foibles. You know, however the, 
the 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 person in the pulpit is at the time, and that invites people to look at their own, to have some grace right. with their own mistakes and their own journey. And I found like, that constantly in your book. I found constant invitations to not take myself as seriously, to laugh at myself a little bit as you laugh at yourself. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a it's a great way I think uh, to connect with people. Uh, to be is to be self deprecating. Um, but yeah, I, I had really had no other choice with this book because I am not a you know I'm not a scientist, so I, I I didn't I couldn't really pretend to be a scientist. So I was like, well, let me just let me lean into the opposite and lean into the idiotness uh, factor of it all. I, I want to go back to something you said just about how groundbreaking Einstein was. I mean, there's a book Thomas Kuhn. I I think I have the title right. I read it a long time ago. Um, the structure of scientific revolutions. And mm-hmm. Kuhn talks about like paradigm. He coins the term paradigm shift. Now that term is used all the time. But for him, what he was using it as was explaining that uh, science makes big progress, not through gradual I- incremental growth, although that's how it, it, go, it, it continues progress. But usually real progress is made by somebody that questions all the assumptions, right? That the, there's no way to go right from Newton to Einstein. Right. There's no logical bridge there. You have to take a leap of faith, almost like uh, Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, when he has to walk on the invisible bridge, right? There's no visible bridge from from Newtonian physics to the theory of relativity. You have to take a leap of, you have to t- try to see things almost like a leap of faith. Suspend. I mean, you talk about uh, in the book I love. You talk about gravitational waves that now, like decades later, we can actually observe what Einstein just intuited. He knew they had to be there, but he didn't have the instruments and the technical acumen to to, to prove it. But he knew they existed. So. I mean, this is this is what often people have to do, right? You have to trust your gut. You have to. Uh, it's not just the, the head, but it seems like Einstein w- was a, a man of not just the head but the heart, and, and had the courage to suspend um, norms about what science knew at the day in order to make progress. Yeah, it goes back to what you were saying earlier. You know what Avi Loeb said in the book. It's like you have to be willing to. You know, as an academic, many academics, like you said, want to make incremental changes and get the honors and get the awards because that's easy to go from, you know, to go from nine to 10. It's a small leap. You know, if science is at a nine and you're helping bring it to a 10, you get the accolades, you get the awards and it's it's a low risk uh, challenge. But what Einstein, first of all, Einstein saw no other way. Like he saw that things were completely different. They weren't a nine. They were a 900. And so he's like, I can't in good conscience, just say, let's go from a nine to a 10. I have to tell the world that the world is actually a 900. Again, I'm just using these random numbers. Um, and he was not afraid to do that. And I, I'm not even sure if it was courage. I, I really just think that he saw this is the way it is. And he even put himself first. He's like, I don't understand this, but this has to be the truth. Uh, this has to be the truth. And you're right. And then it takes like, he came up with all these theories. And only now, a century later, are science scientists actually using telescopes and whatnot to prove uh, Einstein's theories are true. And it's, it's, it's amazing that he had come up with all this stuff in his mind. He came up with all this stuff. Uh, he was a very visual thinker. And everything he came up with has been proved cor- correct. You talk, you have a whole chapter on sort of a brand Einstein. I love it. And you talk about like all these things, bobbleheads and images, and as you said before, mouse pads, I mean, everything. But the, but the best part of that chapter I found was in 1922, you tell this story where he's in a hotel in Japan and he he, he doesn't have any money for a tip, and he, he scribbles some notes on a on a on some on a couple pieces of paper, yeah, and gives them to the hotel staff, and, and he says these are going to be worth something. And in 2017, <laughs> they sell for 1.56 million, the biggest 
price fetched by any Einstein memorabilia. Uh, I mean, this is. Do you? But is it? Is there something? Uh, do you ever think this is too kitschy? I mean, Einstein was not a guy that was a huge fan of of, of excessive capitalism or consumerism. I mean, with this, uh, how would he feel about this about Brand Einstein? Yeah, yeah, right. And I think that's actually what makes it worth more money is that here's a guy who did not care about fame or celebrity, and his his memorabilia is going for millions and millions of dollars. Right? I mean. You know, you said that those uh, the napkins he gave to the bellhops in Japan, but like you know, his pipe has been sold for over a million dollars. He had a leather jacket, a Levi's leather jacket, <clears throat> and he wore it all the time. There's a ton of pictures of Einstein wearing this. Levi. He looks so cool in this Levi's leather jacket, very all American. And when he died, uh, they put it up for auction, and it still smelled. It had all the tobacco smoke from his pipe. You could smell it on the leather. And Levi's itself was the winning bid. They wanted to put it in the Levi's <laughs> Museum. It was, I think, like half a million dollars uh, they, they spent on it. A couple of years ago, I actually broke the record. There was a 70-page document of Einstein's notes, his scribblings. It sold in Paris for $13 million. Um, I mean, it, it, it is mind-boggling that, again, we're talking about a scientist. We're not talking about princess diana's notes or you know the original musical notes of the beatles or, or something like that this is einstein 99 percent of the population has no idea how to explain einstein's science and yet he's still this beloved character that everybody uh wants a piece of and everybody can relate to you have a great chapter in the book about time travel and we are both we're of similar ages and so when you're talking about wanting to be in a delorean and back to the future and Time tra- I love time travel movies. It's one of my favorite. I love yeah. sci-fi in general, and, and it's a great genre. But you talk to uh, somebody uh, who is who um, this guy, uh, Professor Mallet, who has done research on time travel and light and all these interesting things. And and I want to read something because I was deeply, uh, as your friend, moved by this. Um, he he had lost a parent, and you say I could relate with Mallet's desire to reunite with the deceased parents. My own life careened off course when my mother died suddenly when I was in the eighth grade. She was alive when I left the house to go to school. Later that morning, as I sat in my American history class learning about Shay's Rebellion, she had a fatal brain aneurysm. Months early at my bar mitzvah, I had become a man in the eyes of my faith, and now, well now, I was curled up in the fetal position. Never did I wish for a time, a time machine more than at that precise moment. I, I wonder how has that loss? I mean, it's a loss at such a formative time. How has that shaped your writing and your work and your interaction with all manner of subjects that you do deal with as a news editor and, and as, a, as an author? Wow. Um, I think you ha- anytime you're in, you know, I've been a journalist for over 20 years, and I think anytime you're interviewing someone, there is. Um, you know, the surface level stuff, you know, so-and-so is that, let's say you're interviewing the head of a company about his company. And so he's going to tell you about his company or his new app or his new product. Um, but to me, that's not so interesting. To me, what's interesting is the person himself and what motivates that person. And I like to call their a journalism professor once told me the phrase inner demons. You can write a story about someone's inner demons and, you know, you could write a story about his company and it's, you know, a one-page story, or you can write a story about him and his inner demons, and it's a 10-page really interesting story. Uh, and I think because I myself have, I think we all deal with inner demons, but because I had such a seminal experience as a kid losing my mom when I was 13 years old, 
I think I grew up really fast and I think I, I start to look for those inner demons in other people and what motivates other people. And so when I interview people, I always ask them very personal questions, you know, about their life. And of course, we'll talk about their company or whatever the topic of the story is. But the other stuff is much more interesting to me. And I think it's much more uh, interesting to the reader. And the, the, the section in the book you're talking about, this guy who built the time machine, he, he, so he's a physicist who used Einstein's calculations to build a model time machine. He doesn't have the money to actually build a time machine, but if his calculations are correct, it's an actual time machine. And his motivation was because he wanted to go back in time uh, to talk to his dad, because his dad died also when he was young. And I just think like that, to me, is, such a, is a much more interesting story not that the guy built the world's first time machine, but like the reason he's building this time machine is to go back and, you know, try to save his dad from having a heart attack or something, you know? Yeah. It's a wonderful section of the book. And thank you for just sharing about your, we want to talk about your, your own loss because a lot of the people listening to this podcast uh, have losses and, and, and tender parts and hard parts to deal with in their stories. So thank you for, for writing candidly about it and being willing to, to talk a little bit about that. So in, in you know you talk about there's you I mean there's so much in the in the book about chemicals that are that based on molecular models and deodorant and and and, and sensors that you know light you know when you change like light to electromagnetic single signals that open doors in grocery stores all the things that you t- it would be interesting to, for you to just walk around with you for a day and you just go, Einstein, 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 Einstein. Right. I mean, right. of all the things that touch your life that you discovered in your journey with Einstein, what what was the most compelling or the most sticks out or the one that like you keep thinking when you interact with it that you can't stop thinking about? I mean, I, I, my guilty pleasure is watching reality TV. Uh, and so I, I, mean, I try to, I spend a lot of free time watching TV and Einstein, you know, the, the whole uh, mechanism of how remote control works is based on uh, Einstein's theory of the photoelectric effect. Uh, and so it's like literally every night when I'm on the couch, <laughs> hitting play, hitting pause, surfing through Netflix, uh, hitting the up and down button, every single time I hit that button, thanks Einstein, thanks Einstein, <laughs> thanks Einstein. And it's like this guy, I, obviously I never met Einstein, I'm not a scientist, I'm just a schlub who's sitting on his TV, eating ice cream and watching you know, The Golden Bachelor. And even then, at that least scientific time possible, the least smart time possible, the smartest guy, the most scientific guy is still infiltrating uh, my life. I just find that amazing. Uh, you say something in the book. One of the things that's interesting is, and this is one of my favorite parts of the book, and I, I kind of want to bring our conversation to a close with it, because I think it was, among many things, the most profound thing in the book. You talk about, in the chapter on GPS... You talk about how Einstein loved sailing. He did, that, that it brought him tremendous peace, and it was it seemed like something that was restorative for his soul. But he would always get lost and see he was just a, a, a crap navigator. He was just terrible. And you say that uh, in a letter to Queen Elizabeth of Belgium, of all people, he tells uh, he writes to her in this letter about his love of sailing, and he says, "I have a compass that shines in the dark." Uh, like a serious seafarer, but I am not so talented in this art, and I am satisfied if I can manage to get myself off the sandbanks on which I become lodged. And then you say this beautiful line. It's one of these sentences I wish I would have written. In other words, sometimes it takes getting a little lost 
to find where you need to go. Have you found that in your own life to be true? And have you found that more true since interacting with Einstein? And have you found that sometimes it's personally in your life taken being a little lost to find your way in the world? Hmm. You know, I like to think, first of all, that, that quote, by the way, shows Einstein's humility. He's like, you know, I have this fancy equipment, but I like, I usually get lost anyway. Uh, and, and he's telling it to a, to a queen. It's like, he has, he has like no, no embarrassment, no shame. Um, but that's interesting. I think we all like to, I'm a planner. I'm a very OCD. I like to plan. And so I like to plan, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm taking a road trip. I'm going to leave at this time. I'm going to get there at this time. And we can only, we only have time for two stops. And so I can be a little By, too by the way, much. can I just say it personally? You do this with me and our friendship. When I tell you I'm doing something, you ask for my plan. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, but I, I'm an over planner and my wife, you know, gets upset and uh, my, my colleagues get upset. You know, I, I can be a little too uh, rigorous about my plans. Um, and so I, I've been trying, you know, as I was writing this book and now post writing the book and living in the shadow of Einstein to try to take on that mantra in life of like, you know, chill out, relax, you'll get to where you need to go, even if you get lost along the way. You know, Einstein always made it home. Sometimes people had to rescue him on the sailboat, you know, and bring him back to shore. Uh, you know, it's hard to change overnight. You know, uh, I, I try to, 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 to take on that kind of mentality, but it's, it's not always there. I'm, I'm always a work in progress. Um, but I definitely think that is something uh, of Einstein's personality that I'm trying to incorporate into my life. That and humility uh, and empathy, I think, are the three things. Um, you know, one of my favorite quotes from Einstein, people always ask me, what's your favorite Einstein quote? We, we started this conversation talking about Ivanka Trump. Um, was that Einstein said, you know, always be passionately curious. And there are two parts of that sentence. You know, first of all, Oh, well, let's be passionately curious. And to, to be curious is to say is to say to yourself, I don't know something. And I'm meeting this guy in the airport, and I want, I'm curious to know what his life story is. I'm curious to know what makes him tick. I'm curious to, for him to tell me something I don't know. And to be someone who's passionately curious is to admit that you don't know everything. And I just think that's such a, uh, that's such a beautiful way to look at the world. And so that's really something I try to take with me on a daily basis. Well, Benjamin, this is such a great book. And for the passionately curious out there who don't mind spending a little time getting lost in a book, uh, I could think of no better way to get lost for a few hours than by reading The Einstein Effect. It's a great book. Thank you for taking some time to talk with me about it. I'm really grateful. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.